Thank you. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you to the Institute. Thank you to the Harmsworths. It's wonderful to be here. Um, the, um, can you hear me? Everybody hear me okay? Okay. So um, I, from Boston, so I, um, I, I, somebody said to me, what are you going to talk about? <clears throat> and I said, well, it's sort of hard to explain. And they said, does it have to do with America? And I said, um, not really. <laughs> But anyway, here we go. The, 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 the title of the talk is uh, Kant's Little East Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. And my husband also said to me, be very careful how you say his name. You should say Kant. <laughs> so Kant's Little East Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. In America, we don't say Kant, though, because we try to want to sound European. Anyway, <clears throat> all right. Recently, with our children, we sat down to watch the first episode of the new television series, Cosmos. You see, that is American. A reprise of Carl Sagan's famous 1980 series of the same name. The new version, presented by the physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, proved essentially unwatchable for me, in part because of the exhausting computer graphics that resembled a screensaver on overdrive, and in part, and this has happened to me before, because what Tyson was saying gives me vertigo. All he had to do was to lay out for his viewers the Earth's cosmic address. Earth, the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy, the local group, the Virgo supercluster, the observable universe. To remind those of you who may have forgotten, the Milky Way is one of about a dozen galaxies in the local group, which in turn is but one of thousands of clusters of galaxies in the Virgo supercluster. The observable universe involves a very large number of superclusters of clusters of galaxies and extends more than 10 billion light years in all directions. More than that, Tyson explains, many of us suspect that all of this, all the worlds, stars, galaxies, and clusters in our observable universe is but one tiny bubble in an infinite ocean of other universes. Yuck. This dizzying reminder evokes the feeling I had several times in youth when lying in a field staring up at the night sky that I might just fall into the infinite void. Maybe for some people this is an exhilaration and a wonder. For people like me, however, it chiefly provokes anxiety. There's wonder too, to be sure. How can one not marvel at our unlikely existence? But this reawakening to humanity's infinitesimal insignificance reawakens in me also my nine-year-old self, a child whose response to the magnitude of the universe might have been, then I guess there's not much point going to school today, and if I don't feel like it, not much point getting out of bed either. Fortunately, age, experience, and general busyness make it largely possible to repress this underlying knowledge about the cosmos. Once we turned off the television only halfway through the first episode, I'm ashamed to say, I could let go fairly quickly of my vertigo. There were dishes to be done, dogs to be walked, children to be bustled to their beds. The stuff of life, as we call it, when we don't deem it the impedimenta to the life we might have lived, that life of the mind that for all but the hermits among us is ever more reduced and pushed to the interstices by the contemporary world's demands by family and students and homework and emails and so forth. As Thomas Bernhardt's scathing narrator recalls in his brilliant novel, The Loser, while reflecting upon his friendship with the pianist Glenn Gould, who is, needless to say, the narrator's figment, a version of that genius that fittingly only partially resembles the man himself, but that's another story. Anyway, the narrator recalls Glenn saying, 
Fundamentally, we are capable of everything. Equally fundamentally, we fail at everything, he said, I thought. He said, I thought, is a recurring, and it's true. Our great philosophers, our greatest poets, shrivel down to a single successful sentence, he said, I thought. That's the truth. Often we remember only a so-called philosophical hue, he said, I thought. We study a monumental work, for example, Kant's work, and in time it shrivels down to Kant's little East Prussian head and to a thoroughly amorphous world of night and fog, which winds up in the same state of helplessness as all the others, he said, I thought. A good friend of mine, a philosopher and a Kant scholar, has devoted the past 20 years to interpreting passages of Kant's critique of judgment. It is but one of the briefer texts in Kant's monumental work, and yet in order properly and thoroughly to understand it, she has committed all of her adult life thus far and considers her labor far from complete. For almost all of us, the prospect of such serious focus on Kant's thought is impossible. For most of us, if we apprehend even a so-called philosophical hue, we consider ourselves in pretty good shape. It's like the dizzying enormousness of the cosmos in reverse. If, in order properly to understand a paragraph of Kant, one would need to engage in a lifetime of study, what are we to make of the entire breadth of his oeuvre, the observable universe of his oeuvre, if you will? And what beyond that are we to make of the fact that Kant's published writings represent already a careful ordering and editing and articulation into intelligible language of his philosophy, of his conscious thought? And beyond that, given that his thought arose in part from his experience, experience which is all but entirely lost to us, comprised of countless minutes and hours and days and years of life upon this planet, of Kant's individual and particular life, how are we to conceive of the unknowable vastness that was Kant. And from there, indeed, if Kant is but one philosopher among thousands, but one German among millions, but one man among billions, how to conceive of the entirety of uncommunicated and incommunicable human experience? What infinite, invisible universe of Bernhardian night and fog is this, in which we must drift the great genius Kant, according to Bernhardt, in the same state of helplessness as all the others. As we all know, Thomas Bernhardt was a writer who took the dark view. There is much humor along with truth in his ranting narrators, and in choosing a title for the talk, I was beguiled by the arresting and amusing vision of Kant's little East Prussian head, the shrinking of Kant's mind, the breadth of his interests and wisdom down to his little East Prussian head does seem like a loss. But maybe too it's like the freeze-dried vegetables and packet soup merely awaiting hydration for reconstitution. The other possibility for a title that I seriously considered was a quotation from the 1980 film The Long Good Friday. Does anybody know that movie? It's a good movie. In which the gangster Harold Shand, brilliantly played by the late Bob Hoskins, gives a speech at a party on his yacht in the Thames, welcoming the American Mafia to London to collaborate on some white-collar skullduggery in the East End. Hands across the ocean, he exults in his cockney rasp, replete with bullish op optimism. Hands across the ocean. Because, of course, Bernhardt is absolutely right. Of so much of our lives, we retain but a so-called hue, philosophical or not. But to convey or to grasp what Bernhardt laments as a single successful sentence, that I firmly believe is a cause for celebration. 
Even a single successful sentence can be transformative. And at the risk of sounding like Fotherington Thomas, a single poem or novel can alter someone's life forever. That, my hands, my friends, is hands across the ocean, and it is a meeting that happens, if not only, then most fully, through language. With words, we can travel across nations and through time, we can inhabit lives far from our own. Here is the first paragraph of Tolstoy's childhood, his first published novel in, from 1852. On the 12th of August, 18 blank, just three days after my 10th birthday when I had been given such wonderful presents, I was awakened at seven o'clock in the morning by Karl Ivanich slapping the wall close to my head with a fly flap made of sugar paper and a stick. He did this so roughly that he hit the image of my patron saint suspended to the oaken back of my bed and the dead fly fell down on my curls. I peeped out from under the coverlet, steadied the still shaking image with my hand, flicked the dead fly onto the floor and gazed at Karl Ivanich with sleepy, wrathful eyes. He, in a party-colored, wadded dressing gown, fastened about the waist with a wide belt of the same material, a red knitted cap adorned with a tassel, and soft slippers of goatskin, went on walking round the walls and taking aim at and slapping flies. So swiftly, intimately, Tolstoy draws us into the experience of young Nikolai, his semi-autobiographical protagonist. Specificity is essential. From the first, we know it's the 12th of August, the late summer, and if we pause there, we can feel the light of a late summer morning, the dozy air before the day's full heat, and what it is to waken into it. We can hear the intermittent buzzing of the flies, now swooping, now frantic against a window pane. We know, too, that our narrator has just turned 10, and his wonderful presents are still in his mind. He evokes, in passing, the particular delight of that birthday, of reaching the double digits, of the unadulterated joy of one's birthday presents, if they're the right ones, when you're 10. And this simple Tolstoyan specificity renders Nikolai's world both present and vivid to us. We, too, have been 10 years old. We, too, have been wakened unwilling at 7 in the morning. We, too, have felt the laziness of late summer as we have been irritated by the buzzing of its flies. And although we may never have seen one made of sugar paper and a stick, we have surely wielded or at least seen a fly swatter. Each of us then can imagine the particular displeasure of opening an eye on what should be such a glorious morning to the sound of the swatter's slap to the faint but unmistakable sensation of a fly's corpse falling in our hair. The particular image of Nikolai's patron saint may be unfamiliar, but we can sense its frame trembling on the bedstead above our head and can imagine, too, raising a hand to steady it. In a matter of sentences, we are fully in this room with this boy, seeing, hearing, and feeling as he sees, hears, and feels. This Tolstoy gives us in a shared language in familiar words, if you will. His simple, lucid descriptions insist upon the transparency and commonality of his words. But key to this particular August morning is the swatter's zeal of Karl Ivanich. Now, Karl Ivanich is thus far to the reader merely a name, a cipher. But we understand simply by the way that name is evoked that for Nikolai, the world's words Karl Ivanich imply much more. The physical description Tolstoy offers us will evoke him as clearly as any photograph in his gown, cap, and slippers, but it's his restless fly-baiting roam that gestures toward the tutor's personality that we will come to know. Fierce, even obsessive, crucial in young Nikolai's life, but also petty and somehow absurd. All this is here 
from the outset. What Tolstoy achieves and what any fiction writer hopes to achieve is, in fact, magic. <sighs> I use this term not sentimentally, but literally. Tolstoy conjures for us a world familiar enough that we can place ourselves in it. And then, more profoundly, he conjures its inhabitants. Nikolai knows Karl Ivanich, and the promise, if we read on, is that we shall know him too that Karl Ivanich will enter our private imaginary and abide there along with the jostling population of characters, real and fictional, who fill our consciousness and shape our lives. Because naming is magic. Spells are, if you will, essentially a private language, and the magic that they work is very particular. If, for example, I say to you the name Marjorie Riches, you may have some thought about the given name's relative obsolescence, or about the literary potential, either ironic or symbolic, of a character with the surname Riches. You may even know a Marjorie, in which case the name will evoke something more particular and distinct. But if I say Marjorie Riches to my sister, I am performing an act of magic. I am conjuring a person. Marjorie Riches was our maternal grandmother, and simply in the utterance of her name, I am evoking an entire life in our childhoods in Toronto the heavy front door of her gray stucco house, the cul-de-sac above High Park on which she'd known all the other residents forever. I am raising her before us and in us. The tiny ridges of her fingernails and the wart-like callus on her left index finger, the shiny, papery quality of the skin on her hands, the slithery sound of her synthetic floral dresses against her slip when she pressed us to her bosom, the difference in the size of her blue eyes behind their glasses where they looked enormous, and without them, where they look quite small. The slightly duck-like flare of her nose, the flossiness of her granny's perm upon which she wore a hairnet at bedtime. I am conjuring, too, our child's delights in her house, with its laundry chute and the hatch next to the side door for the milkman where foil-topped bottles and pounds of butter would appear before breakfast, the oxblood-colored concrete floor in the basement, with a drain in the middle around which we rode a tricycle in circles at speed even when we were too big really to do so and our knees were hunched up to our chins. I'm bringing back the bowl of pastel-colored nonpareils on the side table in the living room, our lunches of tinned ravioli in wintertime eaten on a creaky stool in the sunroom overlooking the, the snowy garden. I am conjuring simultaneously the apartment of her old age and the high firm ship of her long widowed marriage bed and her glossy crimson underwood typewriter that she kept on a little table near the window. There is her jewel box full of sparkly clip-on earrings and the powder puff music box with its silver filigree. Here now we picture the particularity of her handwriting, the slight downward slope of her signature whether she wrote Marjorie Riches or on all our cards, Grandma and here too the warm flowery smell of her neck which lived in her scarves long after she died and which having taken a few of them home to my apartment I was grown up by then I would inhale greedily every so often just to bring her back until one day the scent was finally gone. I can hear her persistent habit of clearing her throat that so irritated our mother and know again the intent way she had of listening as she grew blind with her eyes looking off slightly to one side of your face focused but unfocused. To tell you these things is to give you but a tiny fraction of what her name evokes, of the magic that her name carries now since my parents' deaths for only two of us on this planet, for my sister and for me. 
It is to make of Marjorie Riches a little Canadian head to stand upon its stake next to Kant's little East Prussian one. But I would insist again that this, even in its near total failure, is cause for celebration. In a language, now there's a hair in my mouth, okay? In a language slightly less entirely pri private, but no less magical, I can utter the words Park Isthmia and bring into life for my sister and myself, but also for others who have lived or been there, the apartment complex on the outskirts of Toulon in the south of France, where our paternal grandparents lived from the late 1960s onwards, so for all of my remembered life, and to which my sister and I and our families still return. Park Ismia, a collection of terraced buildings set in a large park, perches on a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean, above a tiny blue bay with a crescent pebble beach and a fishing village tucked inside each headland. Upon one headland, looking straight out to sea, is a tiny chapel, Notre Dame d'Afrique, before which stands a pristine white statue of the Virgin, arms open to the Mediterranean. Back to the park's entrance off a broad avenue rising from the Corniche, Behind Park Ismia's wrought iron gates extends a long alley of palms intersected by little pathways, these leading to the many routes through the soccer field, the tennis courts, the outside and underground parkings, the storage floors, the swimming pool, and eventually the windy, the windy maze-like cliff paths to the beach that we knew intimately as children from breathless games of cops and robbers with the other compound kids played in the dark after supper when the illuminated pool and the waxing moon provided our only light. The swimming pool right at the cliff's edge is surrounded by a slatted terrace. How well I know the ridges those slats imprint upon your thighs or your back when you lie sunning, watching the droplets on your arms and belly evaporate in the heat. Leaning against the terrace with the pool behind you, you see only the vast sea, each day different, blue or slate gray or even greenish, wrinkled or glassy or multiply crested depending on the wind, the light and the sky. There's a bridge above the pool that's now locked off, too many kids jumped off it into the water and sometime after my adolescence, but before my own kids were born, one must have got hurt. They removed the diving board too, not surprising as each summer the boys would jump as hard as they could in hopes of breaking it and always, always succeeding. They closed off the path to the beach behind the deep end too, so there's only one way in and out through a gate for which you need a key card. So it's both the same pool that I knew and not quite the same, a swimming pool in Palimpsest. Park Ismia is unchangingly the mimosa in winter, and in summer the screaming cicadas and the apartment's metal blinds, les volets, squeakily lowered to blot out the fierce afternoon sun, so that my grandparents' apartment with its cool marble floors was as dark as a tomb and as quiet, except for the soft rolling snores of my grandparents, both of them snoring, not quite in unison, laid out upon their bed for the inevitable siest, and looking, if you peeked in upon them, like open-mouthed corpses. The words bring with them the sound of the sea against the shore in the nighttime when we lay in bed, and the pungent stalks of lavender we crushed between our fingers on the long climb from the parking lot, or the scent of the sprawling rosemary plants on the terrace. Park Ismia is also all the famous concierges who have tended it, latterly the ebullient, even histrionic, endlessly generous Madame Peunier and her husband Pat stocky, hirsute, and Italianate in spite of his Irish name, with their sweet Brittany Spaniel and their daughter Julie, who speaks perfect English and sells cosmetics for Lush in London. 
Then to the gardeners, Alain, who grew old before my eyes in his blue overalls and retired, and Chaban, his young helper, now gray-tipped and in charge of the park with an assistant whose name I do not know. It's the generations of residents too, all those I knew best now gone, like my grandparents and my aunt, the woman dentist with the sharp nose, the grumpy old fellow who looked like his schnauzer, the elegant Zerolo family with their yapping black dachshund Zeus, and the three impossibly beautiful children, only one of whom seems to have fared okay in life. Forever a part of the park, though dead these 20 years, is the ultra-tend Monsieur Innocenti, leaping like a mad Indian sadhu in his black loincloth on the tennis court, his long black hair tied in a straggly top knot, his nipples barely visible on his bony amber chest, and his naughty son Frank, who looked like an angel, long blonde curls and china blue eyes, and who is now middle-aged somewhere, and surely shorn, and probably besuited. Or the Perrault, my grandparents' dear friends, she, half Vietnamese, elegant in the French way and always kind. My Canadian mother loved her and would say sotto voce, Madame Perrault knows what it's like to be an outsider. I don't know what I would have done with her when I, without her when I first married your father. And her tall husband, a naval comrade of my grandfather's, with his long, thin head like de Gaulle's, his wide hips, his lumpy skin, his wet, protruding lower lip, his abstracted manner, and his unpleasantly roving hands. Again, I can for you only scratch the surface of what those two words, Park Ismia, evoke, but a good portion of their meaning to me is understood not only by my sister, but by the long-lost children with whom we played, Frank and the Zerolo kids among them, by the Perrault's daughter and grandchildren, by Alain or Chaban or Madame Peunier herself, the repository now of so much of the park's lore. To share the invocation is not to dilute its power, but to expand it. Such private language in the sharing becomes a story. From another of my memories boxes, I can utter the one word Kambala, an aboriginal word meaning fair hill of flowers, and perform an even wider magic, not perhaps in this room, nor in my daily life in the States, but in Australia and in Sydney in particular, it has its powers. It is the name of the girls' school of my childhood there, frozen for me in 1975, the year we left to live in Canada when I was nine years old. But it remains alive as it was then in the memories of hundreds of little girls, now grown women, and alive as it is now in the minds of today's pupils. For each of us, it will mean different things, of course, and will conjure different emotions and experiences, but much too is shared and contained within that name. Kambala Church of England School for Girls is a cluster of buildings on a hillside in Rose Bay. The boarders inhabit the oldest of them, a grand old house with a wide shaded porch that stares straight back at the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, around which the rest of the school has grown over time. For all of us, Kambala is the uniforms, pale grey checked tunics with gold piping and straw boaters in the summertime, grey flannel tunics with blazers and gold and grey stri striped ties in the winter long gray socks with garters that left red rings around our calves, itchy gray underpants, our hair, if touching our collars, pulled back in gray ribbons that frayed over time at the ends. It's the rigid order of the sports houses. The girdle on my gym tunic was red for Wentworth, and the tiny enamel pin on my blazer's lapel was its red, cream, and gold crest. And the parade across campus in crocodile file from the library to the gym to our classrooms in which we were taught to stand when a teacher entered the room with a great scraping of chairs. I realized that probably in this country that's no big deal, but I got to America and I stood up. 
I was the only kid in the class to pull my chair back and stand up. It's the morning assemblies of hymns and prayers when an older girl who'd skip breakfast would occasionally faint, causing a ripple of disturbance in her row. It's the doodles and cartoons in our hymn books passed back and forth like notes while a headmistress droned on. In my day, the headmistress, Miss Gibbon, had the hair of a gray poodle and a small white pet poodle on a leash to match. Grand and austere, she wore a cape over her dress and marched around the school like Cruella de Vil. It's not just the school itself, it's the bus stop afterwards and the clamor onto the dapper deck, watching to see if a prefect was on board, and if not, our delight in removing our hats, the elastics cut into our chins the way the garters cut into our calves, and even more risque, the delight of hopping off the bus at the milk bar to buy lamingtons or cherry ripes or flake bars, devoured in haste because, of course, we all knew the rule that there was to be no eating in public in uniform, which made the treats perilous and only the more tasty. Cambala was the teacher's Miss Watt in first grade with her wandering eye, her bottle-bottom glasses and orthopedic hose, beloved mild Miss Dixon of the second grade with her smooth skirts and gentle hands, in third grade Miss Clark, gruff at first but generous with her spiky short hair and shiny skin, and in fourth grade the exuberant Mrs. Perini who'd trained as an opera singer and loved to sing for us and who, I realized much later when looking at old notebooks, introduced us perhaps untimely to the existence of Leibniz and Spinoza. It's true, it was so bizarre. Leibniz was a philosopher. The first play I ever saw was the upper school's all-girl production of Hamlet, at which I fell in love with Hamlet himself, played by a prefect named Sue Ellen Hotchkiss. The second was the member of the wedding, of which I chiefly recall that one of the girls was in blackface. When Peter Weir's film Picnic at Hanging Rock came out in my last year there, we all identified mightily with it and adored the vanished Miranda. And when my sister and I held our last costume party that December before leaving Sydney forever, my sister rented from the costume shop one of the girls' actual lace-trimmed white dresses from the film. A year ago, I returned to Sydney for the first time in many years and inevitably dragged my husband and children on the bus to my old house and again on the bus to Rose Bay to see Cambala, my fair hill of flowers set upon the hill, to make the magic real for them. I don't know that it, I did entirely, not least because although the school is in a memorably beautiful location, it is in fact the school in my mind that is magical but I had subsequently the joyous experience of seeing again several of those girls, now women, and of remembering with them. Each name, each phrase, a conjuring, a private language, an entire world and many lives spirited into the restaurant where we were gathered, so much to say and so much blissfully that did not need to be said. How, at this point, you might wonder, does this relate to fiction, to why I tell stories, to why fiction has for me the force of a calling? A friend of mine read this this weekend. She said, yes, by now I really am wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Autobiographically, there's a simple answer. Were you to describe any little head that bore my name, it would be, by now, an American head. I am here at your kind invitation as an American writer, indeed. But as you might surmise from what I've just said, my childhood was itinerant, my identity complicated. My father was French, my mother Canadian. I grew up in Sydney, in Toronto, and then at boarding school in the United States. I came to graduate school at Cambridge where I met my British husband. I did not live in the United States outside of school until I was in my late 20s. Like every single one of us, I can echo Walt Whitman in asserting I contain multitudes. I am who I am because I was where I was when I was. 
and almost all of it is invisible to everyone. This is true, of course, for each of us. I'm by no means ungrateful for my life's disruptions. I may never have had a sense of rootedness except in family, but I've had many wonderful experiences. But I know well what Salman Rushdie meant when he wrote his important essay, Imaginary Homelands. Home, for me, such as it is, is in my mind. Rushdie wrote that, it may be argued that the past is a country from which we have all emigrated, that its loss is part of our common humanity. I, for my sanity, for my heart, could not afford to lose these things. I could instead tell stories. I could become a writer. As Flannery O'Connor famously said, anybody who has survived his childhood has enough information about life to last him the rest of his days. Camus Meursault puts it slightly differently in L'Etranger. A man who had only lived for a single day could easily live 100 years in prison. He would have enough memories to keep him from getting bored. I could not hoard them all, just as one cannot fully capture a single day, just as Kent is reduced to a single success, successful sentence or to his little East Prussian head, but I could salvage fragments. I could convey what Bernhardt calls a so-called hue. Knowing that I must necessarily fail, I could but try. With the particular gift of the English language at my disposal, its carpetbagger's opportunistic capaciousness, its extraordinary and elastic vocabulary. More than that, I could not not try. And I could go further. I realized that in making up stories, as in reading stories, I could create a contained world in which an experience is shared in its entirety. I could invent characters, name them, evoke them, and with and around them a society or a landscape born of my experiences, but as free as my imagination. Weaving together the known and the unknown, the public and the private, I could cast a spell. After reading Tolstoy's childhood and then its companion pieces, Boyhood and the Unfinished Youth, there's much we don't know and will never know about Nikolai's upbringing, let alone Tolstoy's, of course, but how much we do know. And more than that, how much we have experienced ourselves and internalized. Karl Ivanich, first seen in his wadded dressing gown, will be forever our familiar, buffoonish, poignant, passionate, and uniquely himself. He will join the ranks of our relatives, his name a magical evocation, along with Casabon, or Uriah Heep, or Effie Briest, or Leopold Bloom, or Mrs. Dalloway, or Anna Wolfe, or Oconquo, or Portnoy, or Jose Arcadio Buendillo. If I say to you Marjorie Riches, it may not carry much meaning for you yet. But if I say any of these names, or Hamlet indeed, or Humbert Humbert, or Raskolnikov, then we're talking with the thrill of a shared secret knowledge, the evocation of so many formerly private relations and experiences that we have had with our books. The late Renaissance scholar Thomas Green, my professor when I was an undergraduate, wrote that the act of interpretation lies close to the core of our humanity, and poetic or literary interpretation in particular offers an experience akin to the complexity of a lived event. Our relation to literature is a very distinct one. We enter a narrative in order to experience it, and experience it in order to understand it. We do this with a particular divided awareness. On the one hand, we seek a childlike immediate immersion in a story. We want to succumb to its magical conjuring. And at the same time, we want to understand it, to interpret, perhaps even analyze our experience as a means of better understanding our lives or life in general outside the text. It might be too much then to say that it's necessarily a spiritual experience, but it is certainly a sacred one. 
As we live in literature, we are simultaneously attached to it and detached from it, seeking both to be and to know. The fact that a work of literature is limited or contained, that it is a necessary reduction of lived experience, or more generously put, a distillation of it, is what makes this twofold involvement possible. The very infinitude of life itself, not just in the dizzying immensity of the cosmos or the unknowable expanse of one man's thought, but also the wild ineffable complexity of each moment of our own small lived lives in which our interior thoughts and physical sensations are endlessly interwoven, this infinitude makes it all but impossible simultaneously to be and to know. But what, makes, what seems to Thomas Bernhardt's narrator a cause for contempt and lamentation is in fact a mercy and a source of revelation. Constraint and limitation make communication possible. In the first of his essays in Poetry, Signs, and Magic, Thomas Green makes a distinction between a disjunctive theory of language, one which understands language to be conventional, quote, a theory that conforms to common sense and that separates sharply word and thing, and a so-called conjunctive theory by which he means any theory, this is again a quote, any theory of a natural language whereby the word might be seen to correspond to its referent, or worse, whereby the word might acquire the reference power. Witchcraft, after all, he writes, is the power to work wonders. He explores the conflict through the Renaissance between these two ways of approaching the word and observes that, quote, what emerges from the thought of this era is a complicated and rough homology between the occult scientific split and the Catholic Protestant split. Sort of interesting, but we'll save that conversation for another day. This division between language that functions in a magical register as a performative utterance, if you will, and language that functions in a conventional serviceable fashion finds reconciliation, according to Green, in one arena. The place where the tensions between disjunction and conjunction are not repressed, where they can be acted out freely, is the work of art. Green cites Picasso in this regard, writing in a letter to Francoise Gillot about his visit to a museum of ethnographic art, quote, then I understood that painting is not an aesthetic process. It is a form of magic, which is interposed between the hostile universe and ourselves, a means of seizing power, of imposing form on our fears as on our desires. Fiction, too, is a means of seizing power, of imposing form. It's a way of navigating between a shared conventional language to return again to Tolstoy, we all know what the 12th of August is, we've all been 10 years old, and a private magical language. Nikolai knows exactly who Karl Ivanich is, while we do not, but through Nikolai, we too will know him. If I tell you a story about girls at Kambala in Sydney, or about a man and his son in a place called Park Isthmia in the south of France, or about an elderly woman in Toronto who may or may not be called Marjorie Riches, I am seizing power of a kind. I am sharing my magical language and thereby casting a spell. I am working wonders. My magic will always be partial, always a failure, a shrunken head next to life itself. But as my friend has given her life to understanding and explaining a small portion of Kent, I give my life to describing, which is to attempting and failing to understand and explain some small portion of life. It's worth saying, by the way, that it's the vivid and tangible detail that speaks volumes. I'm sorry, I have to get my little writing teacher moment in here. No abstractions. 
Just as, as thought must be translated into language in order for it to be communicated, so too in fiction and in poetry, abstract emotion must be translated into concrete physical reality in order for a reader to have a lived experience. Edith Wharton put it well when she explained, we live in our souls as in an unmapped region, a few acres of which we have cleared for our habitation. While of the nature of those nearest us, we know but the boundaries that match, that march with ours. Did you get that? Did, you, did that make sense? She's basically in a grand lady way saying like, I can't, see the, I can't see the house. I can only see this part of the estate. So this is all I know of a person. I can't see the mansion. But if this part of the estate's in bad shape, I'm assuming the house is too. Um, we cannot see into the hearts of our neighbor's estates just as we ultimately know only a little of our own terrain. But from what we can see, we can infer much. From the absolute specificity with which Tolstoy describes for us what Karl Ivanich says and does, from the nature of his movements and from what he wears and from who he consorts with and what he reads, we will understand much about him that isn't directly articulated nor exactly articulable. If all language were conventional, disjunctive, if you prefer Green's term, then ours would be a dull and limited world indeed. It's the world of functional discourse in which we live much of our lives. And of course, if language were entirely private, no communication would be possible. The terrain of a fully private language is madness, or dementia. It's the situation where hands across the ocean can't quite bridge the gap, where we, the recipients, the readers, are left without access to experience, where it remains veiled or, frankly, unshared. My mother, as her memory and lucidity abandoned her, came to speak in poetry, in an oracular language. In the last two years of her life, she was often quiet, she who had been vitally gregarious. And once, as she sat in silence, I asked her what she was thinking. With a wry and wistful smile, she answered, shards of memory and new worlds discovered. This beautiful postcard from across the abyss, from the incommunicable private island of her later experience, stays with me each day. What is our hope for the experience of literature if not to share this? Shards of memory and new worlds discovered. What indeed, if not this, is the best truth of our experience of life? I have my own collection of liter little literary and philosophical heads, my own stock of single successful sentences, some of which you've heard today. Each of us is constructed like a magpie's nest from these, as much as from our childhood experiences and our innate temperament and our loves and losses. We are as much the sum of our lived literary experiences as of our literally lived experiences. This, of course, is what Eliot expressed in The Wasteland, and his is one of the essential sentences I carry with me everywhere. I've slipped it into several of my books. These are the fragments I have shored against my ruins. That's all. It's why I write, really. Fail again, fail better, to cite another from my collection, a single successful sentence, a so-called philosophical hue, each an invocation, each a hand across the ocean, each a resting of power from fear and desire, each a small magic. Thank you.